You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. I wanted to talk today, and this is actually a, uh, a sequel or a version of a talk that some of you may have already heard me give, uh, but I felt like there was some unfinished business in that talk that I gave uh, at the JCC last year, and I've had more time, more opportunity to uh, reflect on some of the themes that I, that I had uh, in that talk, uh, which was about... Uh, the title uh, that, that we've given to this talk today is uh, Talking About My Generation, uh, which is some of you know is a lyric of a band called The Who, which is not a band of my generation, but nevertheless, uh, Talking About My Generation, a millennial rabbi explores ancient wisdom for contemporary challenges. A lot of us uh, read a lot in the press about the particularities of the millennial generation. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, anxiety, confusion, curiosity uh, about who the millennials are uh, and what they value and what it's going to be like when, uh, when, when many of us uh, have kind of exited the stage and uh, the millennials are going to be the ones, you know, in, uh, in, in positions of uh, authority and power and adulthood uh, in, in this country. Uh, for some people, that's a source of great anxiety. For some people, that's a source of great opportunity. Uh, and for some people, it's just a source of uh, curiosity. We don't really know uh, what, what they're going to be like because it seems uh, like there's so much difference between uh, the millennials, say, and the silent generation or the baby boom generation. I actually think that there's uh, less difference between some of those generations as uh, as meets the eye. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a matter of uh, some curiosity. And I think it's a particular matter of curiosity within the religious community, not just Judaism, but the religious community, broadly speaking, uh, because as you can see from some of the research I brought, and we'll get into that research in just a moment, uh, the millennials are uh, uh, the least likely generation to be affiliated with religious institutions and the least likely generation to affiliate to uh, re- uh, to report uh, particular religious uh, connection, religious denomination in the first place. So not only identification with particular institutions, but identification with religion altogether, right? So there is in the, in the sociology, uh, a, uh, a growing category, uh, that the sociologists call the nuns, which is not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, which means that when the demographers ask the question of their sample population, uh, what religion do you identify with? Or do you identify as Catholic, uh, Episcopalian, Baptist, Jewish, Muslim, right? The, the, the fastest growing religion is none of the above. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean people don't have religious beliefs. It doesn't necessarily mean that people don't believe in God. It doesn't necessarily mean people don't have religious connection. It just means that they don't uh, uh, identify with a particular religious group or religious denomination. And, uh, and, and that should then, uh, make it no surprise that, uh, that the, that the fastest growing segment of the population is not belonging to religious institutions. Uh, 
Now, it's true of the millennial generation that uh, that they don't belong, that, that they, we don't tend to belong to, to institutions altogether. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but why do I want to talk about this? So I want to talk about this for a couple reasons. The first is, as somebody who is involved in religious leadership, in institutional religious leadership, um, I have a vested interest in engaging the millennial generation, as I do uh, in engaging uh, Gen X and baby boomers and silent generation as well. But I have a vested interest in engaging the millennial generation because if the millennial generation is not uh, engaged, uh, then the institutions will cease to exist. And I have a vested in interest in the institutions. I have a vested interest in synagogues. I think that they're, uh, on balance, good things. They do good things in the world. Uh, they provide meaning and, and value for, uh, for, for people and for communities. So they're good things, and I want them to continue to survive and continue to flourish, although I recognize that in order to meet the needs and address the concerns of the millennial generation, those institutions are going to have to shift and they're going to have to change. Um, just as they did to meet the needs of uh, the baby boom generation, although they're still in, in religious communities because they tend to be uh, communities of, of, of legacy and memory, which means that they're slow to adapt. We're still kind of adapting to the baby boom generation, uh, which is uh, which presents its own set of problems and challenges. Um, uh, but uh, but the institutions as they exist are largely uh, products uh, of uh, of. Um, the silent generation and the generation that preceded them. Uh, and so there's a lot of catching up that we're going to have to do. But those institutions evolved to meet the needs of, of that generation. So just as in, yeah? So the silent generation is the generation before the baby boomer, sometimes also called the greatest generation. Okay. Um, but I think that in the uh, sociology, they, they uh, prefer not to use the term greatest generation because it describes a value to the generation that, uh, that you know, that academics can't, uh, can't say. But I'll say it fine because there's so many uh, of us here. The greatest generation is what I'll call them. Um, <laughs> although every generation thinks it's the greatest generation, right? No problem. Um, so that's part of why I want to talk about this. The second reason I want to talk about it is because I am part of the millennial generation. Uh, and so on some level, I kind of uh, am in this weird place of, uh, of straddling the line between uh, embracing and uh, championing religious institutions uh, and institutional life that, uh, that my generation uh, tends to reject and also identifying with a lot of the concerns and, and needs and approaches and mindset of my, that, that are embodied by my generation. Right, so what I mean by the millennial generation, there's differences of opinion about this. Uh, uh, the Pew Research Center, uh, who's some of research I, I, I gave uh, to you, uh, maybe some of you have it and some of you don't, are sharing. Um, so the Pew Center defines millennials as uh, those born after 1980. Um, a lot of other people make that a little bit uh, um, uh, later and say 1983. So I was born in January of 1983. I just had my 33rd birthday a couple of days ago. That, that for some of you, may be horrifying. Uh, for some of you, may be very cute, whatever it is. Uh, but um, such as it is, OK? so. Um, so 
no matter what your definition is, I am part of the millennial generation. Just I might be at the very beginning of it or closer to the beginning of it uh, than than by other definitions. Uh, and uh, and so and and a lot of the research that's presented about millennial gen generation, uh, even without having seen the research, I would have said, okay, this identifies me as a person. This is if I were to kind of summarize like who I am in the world uh, and and maybe to reflect a little bit on, on how I became who I am in the world, a lot of this research I think really resonates with me. And uh, of course, like all research, uh, it doesn't represent 100% of the population, right? So there are definitely people within the millennial generation that don't fit into uh, these categories who don't identify in quite the same ways. Um, but, uh, but, but on the whole, um, I actually find this research to be, uh, to, to reflect the reality um, or to reflect a significant enough percentage of the reality is to make it compelling, okay? So let's just look at a couple of things that are characteristic of the millennial generation, okay? So, the first thing that uh, that, that you should know uh, about the millennial generation uh, is, like I said before, that they are detached from institutions, okay? Um, maybe even, this is something that also in some ways identifies the baby boomers and Gen Xers as well, um, a sense of uh, deep individualism and skepticism of groups and institutions that uh, that that compel uh, particular ways of being, ways of life, ways of dress, ways of behavior, ways of thinking, right? And so there's a, you could probably kind of track it as a trajectory uh, that uh, that really begun with really began rather with the baby boom generation of uh, of rejecting institutions, uh, uh, embracing individualism, and I think that that continued through the Gen X uh, generation and uh, and is even more pronounced in the millennial generation. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, in, in uh, statistics, they say, or they say, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation, right? So uh, it's hard to give precise reasons for some of these things. Um, but I can tell you that for sure, for me, one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, things that has given me the most skepticism of institutions and a feeling that the institutions themselves are not particularly relevant in my life um, is really the second feature of the millennial generation, which is being digital natives, right? So I think that there's a way in which uh, the rise of the computer age and the internet age has weakened the hold and the necessity of institutions. Right, institutions used to be um, repositories for meaning and belonging. You no longer need institutions to be uh, repositories of meaning and belonging. I can find meaning and belonging in a lot of places. I can find wisdom in a lot of places. It's broadly accessible, and in fact, right, uh, I can uh, I can evaluate uh, the quality of meaning and belonging of my local institutions or my national institutions uh, in ways that previous generations couldn't because they don't have the resources uh, and accessibility to evaluate the quality of the meaning and belonging uh, within those organizations and, and institutions. So I think that that's a major thing. The other reason I think that there is a, a skepticism of institutions, and it's related to a broader awareness of what's out there, uh, the fact that we you know, that, that that images are beamed to us 
constantly and information is, is widely accessible, um, is I can see the dysfunction of institutions in ways that maybe previous generations couldn't. I can see the corruption within institutions in ways that maybe previous generations couldn't, although I would argue that baby boomers and Gen Xers could as well. I mean, I think a lot of that started or came into consciousness with, with the Watergate and Vietnam eras. Um, and, uh, and, and I can see the dangers of institutions in ways that, uh, that, that maybe previous generations couldn't. So in the last talk I did uh, on this, I, I, I identified that the, one of the um, formative events of my young life, and I think if you were to ask millennials, this would be one of the formative <laughs> events of their young life. And it's different. I mean, I, I, I suspect that a lot of you would see this as a formative event too, but in a different way because it didn't happen in your developing years. Okay, so 9-11 um, was at, like my first or second week of college, right? And I was living in New York. It was the first time I was away from home, living in New York at the time. And, and, and I just, I think it's, it's worth acknowledging for a moment um, what 9-11 means and symbolizes um, beyond the security concerns that became so much of the conversation about 9-11. But what 9-11... Uh, represented to so many people is um, here is what uh, can happen when um, when institutions become corrupted, when ideologies become corrupted, when there's when there's a, a coercion of belief in a particular way, um, and uh, when uh, uh, when uh, and, and what we also saw in it um, is the breakdown of systems, right? So we also saw in the 9-11 era, right? We, we, we heard the, uh, the, the panels, right? We saw that, uh, that the, that the president had a memo, you know, a, a month before 9-11 saying bin Laden determined to attack, uh, in, in the United States, uh, and disregarding. We saw sort of the, the inadequacy of institutions to be responsive to the, to, to real needs of people. Um, so as a formative event, you can kind of see why uh, the millennials are skeptical and detached from institutions, right? And uh, but as an event, it also reflected um, the the power and the uh, and the and the impact of um, of access to information and access to a broader network of connectivity, right? So the um, the uh, before he was uh, president, uh, Barack Obama uh, on the campaign trail gave a speech in Berlin. Uh, uh, at the, at the Brandenburg Gate, where he, uh, where he took, what's that? Oh, Jenny was there? Um, it was a, uh, a really, I, I think, I think a really extraordinary powerful speech, um, where, where he talked about, uh, the, uh, again, what, what 9-11 represented and reflected, um, that, you know, people could be born in Germany and uh, and and raised in uh, in the Middle East and North Africa and uh, get training uh, to fly planes in uh, in in America and then move back to Germany. the the interconnectivity of the world, the closeness of the world, the smallness of the world in the information age and transportation age um, is is a powerful feature and is a native part of the life of millennials, right? We are part and see ourselves as being heirs to this small world, right? Um, 
And and so uh, and so by the way, that presents a, a, on a number of levels a real challenge to uh, religious affiliation and religious identity because if I have access to all of the information, uh, one of my friends on Facebook the other day asked a really provocative question. I, I didn't follow the answer to it, but I suspect that the answer is uh, uh, really interesting. Uh, how, what percentage do you think of everything that has ever been written is now available on the internet? For free, probably, on the internet. I don't know about 100%, but it's probably very high, right? Um, I mean, there, certainly, uh, there's certainly things that before the advent of the printing press, uh, before good historical record keeping have been lost, right? So we don't, you know, we have, we have the Bible, but we don't necessarily have all the source material that went into producing the Bible, right? So we don't, that's been lost. But, uh, but anyway, so there, there may be a significant percentage of things that we don't, don't even know ever existed, but probably did exist. But, of the things that we know have existed in terms of things that have been written down, there's probably a very high percentage of, of that is now available on the internet, right? So why would I affiliate with a religious institution that has a very particular worldview, a very uh, limited repository of knowledge and information when I can find everything I ever wanted to learn on the internet? However, here's the challenge, and this is a challenge that is uh, underscored by September 11th and uh, really the rise of uh, of of uh, um, radical Islam uh, that has come since 9/11 is that uh, that the availability of information on the internet is detached from uh, traditional authority, right? So it doesn't actually matter who said things anymore as long as they are being said. Right. So that, from my perspective, is a big challenge, is a big problem, because it gives uh, um, a lot of people access to uh, really lunatic ideas, but gives those ideas the same weight and credibility as ideas that come from people who are not lunatics. Right. So um, so I, I would say that that's actually a good argument for the institutions, but it's hard to. Uh, ignore the the power of broad access to to information, and also the the the, the sort of liberating value of no longer needing to be an expert in something in order to get your opinion out there, and in order to be a source of information. Right. So that's actually in some ways a, a danger. But think about it from the other direction. It's also incredibly empowering, right? So um, it, there was a time when people thought that the only way you could uh, provide information to people in ways that they would uh, um, uh, respect was to have a panel of experts write the information and to have a rigorous editorial process to make sure the information was correct and written properly, and then to have a lengthy publication process to then get you a multi-volume book of everything that there was to know. And when the founders of Wikipedia started Wikipedia, everyone laughed at them. They said, who is going to want to read an encyclopedia that was written by non-experts. And what they discovered is that 
Everybody wants to read that encyclopedia. And more than that is that a lot, most, in most cases, especially when it's, you know, sort of, um, high trafficked, uh, 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 topics and issues, the information there tends to be as good, if not better, than it was in the traditionally published encyclopedias. So what we've enabled and discovered in this context is that uh, is that the average layperson has not only access to information that's uh, that's of greater uh, that's greater than they've ever had access to before, but is also can be also can be uh, the source of information, the source of leadership, the source of authority in a way that they never before had the opportunity to do. So if you think about why millennials are skeptical of institutions, detached from institutions, is that institutions have very ingrained and sometimes rigid power and authority structures, right? And so why limit my power in the context of an institution when I can be far more powerful outside of the context of institutions, when, I can be, when, my, when my abilities and expertise can be far more respected in other contexts and in other cultures outside of those traditional structures. So I actually have, am not surprised why it's hard for millennials to say belong to synagogues. Right, because or churches, for that, churches are experiencing. I, uh, I churches are experiencing mainline Protestant churches, especially, um, are, are experiencing this much worse than uh, than the Jewish community. And I was in a conference the other day with an organization that that I'm part of. Uh, uh, Janet uh, mentioned called uh, uh, Rabbis Without Borders. It's part of this large organization called Claw. And uh, and I was in a session with Claw and. Uh, uh, they spent a lot of time talking and thinking about these kinds of issues. Uh, the president calls a rabbi named Erwin Kula. Uh, and, uh, and Erwin said, you know, the, the pro mainline Protestant churches are, are, you know, really dealing with this in a, in a significant way. The, their decline has been much more steep and devastating than, uh, than, than, than the institutional Jewish world. Uh, and, and then he said, the Jewish community tends to be about 40 years behind the the mainline Protestant community, and and then and then I piped in and I said, yeah, but we're usually forty years ahead of worrying about it, so it balances out. Um, but anyway, so I can I can see why um, millennials are less likely than their than their parents or grandparents to join a synagogue because it forces them to check their power uh, in a way that understandably they don't want to do, okay? So, all right, let's go a little bit further, okay? Um, another important feature of millennials in, in America is, uh, is diversity, racial, ethnic diversity, right? Uh, so this is a generation uh, where uh, uh, desegregation, uh, where integration, uh, where uh, re uh, religious and cultural and ethnic um, uh, pluralism is a reality of life um, and is broadly understood as a social positive, right? Uh, whereas the boomer generation 
lived in a culture where those issues were still in a large in large part being debated right and, and the the greatest generation the silent generation uh, uh lived in a in a culture that was uh much more segregated uh between uh, uh along racial and ethnic lines um the uh the the millennial generation has has always lived in a world has all in america i mean has always lived in a world of uh, of of uh broad diversity and that's both fact and value for the millennials, right? So the fact that we live in a, in a, in a diverse world and diverse communities is uh, understood to be a good thing, right? And that there are multiple approaches to living life, uh, multiple ways of being in the world, uh, and none are inherently better or worse than others. Right. And all when brought together can provide, you know, richness and texture to communities and life. So, um, you know, just just as a, as, as a stark, we talk a lot in the Jewish community about uh, intermarriage. Right. Um, but intermarriage is actually a sociological term talking about uh, marriage between different uh, demographic groups. Right. So uh, intermarriage was before it was a term in vogue in the Jewish community was a term that was used to describe marriage between uh, white people and black people. Right. And uh, so if you think about intermarriage as something that uh, is about marriage of somebody of a different uh, racial, ethnic or religious group than the one to which you were born in, uh, the one you were born into which you were born. There we go. That's what I want to say. If you think about intermarriage that way, uh, um the 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 numbers are are um astronomically higher today and especially among the millennial generation than they were a generation or two ago right it's true of the jewish community of jews marrying non-jews but if you think about it in in the uh framework of the larger social phenomena it's actually really not surprising why the numbers are higher among jews and one of the reasons that the numbers are higher among jews as they are among everybody else, is that we live in a uh, an increasingly pluralistic society, right? Where uh, your uh, where your uh, heritage doesn't have to be your destiny, and where um, where there's where there's uh, uh, an, an understanding, a philosophy that my group can be my own personal identity and that's nice but that doesn't necessarily make me better or worse than anybody else and so uh and so there's no taboo against marrying somebody of a different group than you because they are equal in their humanity to you and they're probably working with you in school with you neighbors with you whatever and so i mean this may be another talk about uh about the response to intermarriage in the jewish community but my there was a time when intermarriage was seen as a deliberate rejection of Judaism. And in our context, I actually don't think that that's the case. I don't think that intermarriage is a, is a deliberate rejection of a person of, of Judaism. In a lot of cases, maybe even the majority of the cases, and depending on how the community approaches people who are intermarried, it could be the vast majority of, of cases, uh, where, uh, where the Jewish partner um, is still deeply committed to their Jewish uh, identity, still uh, consider their Judaism to be a very important part of who they are, uh, and even want to raise their kids exclusively as Jews, right? It's just 
not the determining feature of their relationship with their partner or the determining feature of who they're going to date, right? You tend to date who you socialize with. You tend to date who you're around, right? So people find their spouses in college or in the workplace or to the bars they go to. It's only now that you can really sort of self-identify who you want to date uh, via online dating. Uh, but even there, um, I, I wonder what percentage of the Jewish community is using JDate to the exclusion of, say, like, Match.com or, or something like that, where you're really looking for somebody who is compatible with you on more levels than just what is your religious background. And in a lot of ways, one's religious background uh, is 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 not, uh, and there's a there's a, I think a, a keen awareness of this is not a, uh, a a determining factor of how successful your relationship is going to be. Right? There's there's a, an, an awareness of sort of more um, broad uh, compatibility. Than, uh, than that. Okay, so, uh, so we live in, so the millennials see that as both fact and value, that we live in a pluralistic society and that it's good to live in a pluralistic society and that pluralism is itself a, a, a positive good. Okay, a couple other things that I want you to see, and I'm on, uh, the, these num pages aren't numbered, but uh, in the packet it's uh, one, two, three, it's the fourth page, so I guess that makes it page eight. Um, economic hardships. So the millennial generation uh, um, is coming to adulthood or came to adulthood um, around the time of uh, the Great Recession. Um, and what the Great Recession uh, uh, did was first it made it harder for millennials to get a job, right? So there's a, an increasing phenomenon of people in my generation after college going back and living at home, Right, and there's a, a where, where it used to be. Okay, the trajectory was you go to college, you find a job, you move out of, the, or you move out of the house before you go to college, uh, and and you find a job, and then you're out of the house, right? And uh, and and in my generation, there's an increasing phenomenon of of you go to college, maybe you figure out what you want to do, maybe you don't, you move back to the house until like you really establish yourself, right? Um, and that's. Uh, that's not because people in my generation are like freeloaders and they, uh, and they, I mean, that may be true too, but they, uh, and they, uh, you know, and they, and they want to like sap everything they can out of mom and dad. Um, but it's, it's a, it's, it's a, a feature of the new economic reality, right? Um, making ends meet, um, is harder in our, uh, harder, especially for young people, but harder in our society than it was a generation ago. Um, Wages have stayed stagnant. The cost of living in most places has risen. Uh, it's, it's harder. And if you look at the statistics, uh, that's not just the millennial generation, but in general, and you know, it's, it's, you see it coming out. You saw it in the last election, presidential election. You see it in this one. You know, you ask like people, why are people so angry? And there seems to be a lot of anger in, in the, in, in the country at, at, in our particular moment. I think one of the reasons for that is there's a sense that it is harder to get ahead than it was uh, a generation ago, than it was for my parents' generation. And I think that part of that is a sense that the basic promise, right, that if you work hard and you uh, and you do everything you can to get ahead, that you are likely to get ahead, is not seen as being true anymore, uh, or is increasingly seen, is, is uh, uh, 
increasingly seen as less true than it than it was a generation ago. Um, and and underlying that is um, and the Great Recession exposed this in, in in a way that we're still kind of figuring out what to do about and grappling with. Although it's really been true for at least a generation, is um, widening inequality in in our country, um, which is not a political statement. That's a, a a statement of of objective fact, right? And if you want to read a, a uh, an extraordinary analysis of it. Read Robert Putnam's uh, recent book, Our Kids. Robert Putnam is an, uh, probably the nation's leading sociologist, political scientist, uh, and uh, he, I think he teaches at Harvard. Uh, and he wrote this book called Our Kids that talks about uh, inequality in in uh, in America. And he kind of traces it from the 1950s, which he sees as sort of like a Aside from racial equality, of course, he sees it as sort of like a golden age of economic equality in our country versus today where there is a very wide chasm between the haves and the have-nots uh, in, in, in our country. Um, so the millennials are deeply sensitive to that reality, right? And uh, are, um, I don't want to say obsessed with that reality, but uh, but believe that it's their generational mission to resolve that reality, right? To to uh, to forge greater economic equality and economic opportunity. That's partially selfish for them, but partially ideological, right? That also uh, is uh, uh, perhaps makes it unsurprising. Well, let me rephrase that because I don't want to get too political with this. Um, uh, it uh, um, that translates. Uh, I think, to millennials being more likely to identify with uh, the ideologies and policies of the Democratic Party uh, and Democratic politicians than Republicans. Okay, so, um, and, uh, and what's interesting is that millennials are more likely to report that they are independent than previous generations, but also way more likely to vote Democratic. Than previous generations. So you can see, uh, what page did I turn to here? So that's the fourth page, fifth page. Um, on the, the, um, so I guess it's page like 10 and 11. Um, it's got an infographic at the top that says millennials upbeat about their financial future. Um, at the bottom it says millennials are independent but vote democratic. Here's what it says. Uh, not only do half of all millennials choose not to identify with either political party, just 31% say there's a great deal of difference between the Republican and Democratic parties. That's the aversion to institutions, right? I don't want to be labeled with anything. I don't want to uh, affiliate with anything. More people in older generations, uh, including 58% of silence, say there is a big difference between the parties. Even so, this generation stood out in the past two presidential elections as strikingly Democratic. According to national exit polls, the young old partisan voting gaps in 2008 and 2012 were among the largest in the modern era, with millennials far more supportive than older generations of Barack Obama. As Obama's approval ratings have declined in recent years, however, millennials have joined older adults in lowering their assessments of the president. Yet, millennials continue to view the Democratic Party more favorably than the Republican Party. And millennials today are still the only generation in which liberals are not significantly outnumbered by conservatives. Okay? Um, I don't think that that's just a feature of their youth. I think that there's, that's a feature of the climate in which they're, they've been born. Right? And, and again, like, I don't want to make this too political, but I'll lay out. I think that there is a, a sense among millennials that the Democratic Party is a bigger tent 
uh, a bigger tent in terms of ethnicity, a bigger tent in terms of culture, um, whereas increase in, and this is a, a problem that the Republican Party is dealing with in this presidential cycle, is that increasingly the Republican Party feels like the party of, of, uh, of middle to older aged uh, white men who are angry, right? Um, <laughs> For some reason, uh, even though things are great, if you're a middle to older age white man, it's a, it, uh, things are great for you. But, but for some reason, they're really angry. So, um, but anyway, so um, so so when we talk about what it means to make religion relevant to the millennial generation, in particular, I care about making Judaism relevant to the millennial generation. All of those factors are deeply important to what it means to make religion and Judaism relevant to the millennial generation. So look at the source sheet that I gave and, and just, uh, just to highlight a few different areas. And I think that these are, to me, some of the most fundamental Jewish values that if they are communicated as primary, right, or if they're reinstated, in other words, to their place of primacy within uh, Jewish life, if the Jewish institutions reflect these values and support these, champion these values, embody these values, then the institutions then become uh, much more attractive to, to the millennial generation, speak to the needs and the concerns of the millennial generation in ways that uh, they, they haven't seen, we haven't seen institutions speak to our needs. So the first is, and this is, I think, um, each of these, I think, are, uh, at the core of Jewish values. And so this is just a matter of, um, I'm on this page that says talking about my generation. Okay. Um, I, I started at the beginning with, uh, with, with two teachings. Uh, the first is, and these I think encapsulate in some ways all of the teachings. Okay. But, uh, really the first one, which is maybe the most famous Jewish teaching, it's the words of the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Lahinu Adonai Echad. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Right, which to me is not just a mathematical statement of, you know, how many gods do we believe in? Do we believe in this many or this many? Right? It's actually a statement of values. It means that on a, on a fundamental level, all of reality is one. Right? Which means that there is a, there's a, a, a fundamental equality between all human beings, an interconnectedness of all reality, uh, and therefore a profound responsibility that each of us has to each other and everything that exists. Right? So, to me, at the core of the concerns and the worldview of the millennial generation is precisely that value, right? They see, we see an interconnected world. We see a world of profound equality of humanity. We see a world in which my actions impact the actions of everyone around me. That that there is a that that the interconnectivity we have uh, requires a deep responsibility, right? So the Shema itself, I think, uh, if it's restored to primacy, not just as a mathematical statement, but as a value statement within Jewish life, that itself makes Judaism a, a, a an attractive uh, path. For millennials. Sorry, someone asking a question? Or? Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. I didn't see in the back. Okay. All right. So here, so, so here, here are four principles. Okay. The first, human dignity and equality. Okay. Just to kind of quickly look at these texts. Okay. These are, I think, are some of the core texts, 
some, these are not like fringe texts in Judaism. These, I think, are at the heart of what Judaism is, uh, has always been about. So the Mishnah, Sanhedrin 4.5, says, comments on the creation story in Genesis. Therefore, Adam was created alone, right? God created one human being first. To teach you that anyone who destroys a life, Scripture regards him as if he had destroyed an entire world. And anyone who saves a life, Scripture regards him as if he had saved a full world, right? Uh, in other words, religion at its best is an affirmation of life. And any religious teaching that doesn't affirm life and that compels violence and death is actually irreligious from the Jewish view. Right? In a world of rising religious fundamentalism, that to me is an important religious message to be communicating to millennials. And, and for the purpose of making peace among humans so that a person cannot say to his fellow, my father was greater than your father. Right? In other words, Judaism, which is usually viewed as this very like particularistic tradition, right? God chose us from among all the people of the earth. Actually, in our most sacred texts, what we say is God may have chosen us for a particular purpose, but fundamentally all human beings are equal. The light of the Messiah, when it blazes in the heart, this is Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who was the first chief rabbi of pre-state Israel. The light of the Messiah, when it blazes in the heart, teaches one to dignify all people. In other words, the only way to create a perfected world, which is embodied by the Messiah, the Messianic age, is to dignify all people. It shall be on that day that the root of Jesse will stand as a sign to the nations and people will seek him and his consolation shall be dignity. Uh, taking Isaiah's words about the Messianic age and saying that the way to bring about the Messianic era is to affirm the fundamental dignity of all people. Come and learn, says the Talmud. So great is human dignity that it supersedes a negative commandment in the Torah. In other words, if there is a prohibition in the Torah, which by Jewish law is the most uh, serious uh, uh, thing that a person uh, either must obey or must not violate, depending on whether your cup is half full, cup is half empty type, type of person. If that commandment in practice violates human dignity, that commandment can be set aside. Talmud says this, right? So, so uh, I was teaching the other day, um, about a topic not related to this. I'm not exactly sure how it came up in that conversation, but some people ask, you know, because some people know here, uh, if you're at Bethel or maybe you just heard in the community, uh, that uh, Bethel has uh, uh, um, started being um, uh, uh, totally inclusive of uh, gays and lesbians and uh, transgender interviewed the whole the LGBT community, including performing weddings for same-sex couples. And someone said to me, like, like, how can you do that, right? The Torah says that uh, a man shall not lie with another man, and it is an abhorrence. And I said that there are two things I could say about that. The first is, I'm actually not sure that that passage is um, as clear-cut as it's traditionally understood to have been. And so I think that there's possibility of reinterpreting that passage in a way that doesn't disenfranchise and reject whole categories of people and, and affronts their dignity. But... What I will say, and I can point to the Talmud here, say, even if we've understood that passage correctly, if in practice that passage hurts people and diminishes their dignity, then human dignity supersedes religious obligation, right? So that's a religious precept. That's a religious principle. So 
what I could say about that is even if I were to agree that Leviticus can't be read in any other way, I could still say that God never wanted us to follow a law that hurt people and that affronted their dignity because human dignity is primary, right? So again, if you think about what matters to the millennial generation, we have 10 minutes left total. Yeah, so I should start taking questions in a second. Okay, so give me just two seconds to run through these next couple things, right? So talk about things that, that, that speak to the concerns and values of the millennial generation, an awareness of, of, of human dignity across religions, across cultures, across ethnicities, across um, uh, socioeconomic lines, right? This is a compelling teaching that if our Jewish institutions embody, will make them compelling to the next generation. Second, it's a related one, is pluralism. Right. And again, this is not something that in, uh, 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 is given a lot of press, uh, as being a core Jewish value. Um, but you can see again from the Talmud, I think one of the greatest texts of the Talmud, um, you can see that this is actually a primary Jewish value. You can see it reflected in all of Jewish literature from the Bible through the Talmud, through the great codes of law, um, is a, a an awareness that different points of view are not uh, meant to be uh, bullied or buried, but rather to be honored and elevated, uh, even if they're not practiced, uh, to be held alongside of the normative view, right? So Rabbi Abba shared, stated in the name of Shmuel, for three years there was a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, uh, two great schools of Jewish, uh, of, of Jewish law in the ancient world. The former asserting the halakha, Jewish law, is in agreement with our views, and the latter contending the halakha, the halakha is in agreement with our views. Then a divine voice, God himself, came forth announcing, The opinions of both are the words of the living God, but the halakha is in agreement with Beit Hillel. In other words, both opinions, both points of view, are God's words. Which means that it's not necessarily that one is right and one is wrong. It may be that one is practiced and one is not but both should occupy a place of respect in other people's thought process and other people's thinking. People of radically opposing views should have a place of respect and dignity in your thought process. So then they ask, since however both of the words of the living God, what was it that entitled Beit Hillel to have the halakha fixed in according with their rulings? Because they were kindly and modest, they studied their own rulings and those of Beit Shammai, and were even so humble as to mention the opinions of Beit Shammai before theirs. I think that's an even more deeply radical statement than the first. Which is the only reason Beit Hillel was right was because they were more committed pluralists than Beit Shammai. Right? So embedded in the heart of Jewish values is an awareness that multiple opinions can also be reflections of God's will and that we should honor and respect those of opposing views, even if they are diametrically opposing views to our own. Okay. Third, stewardship, right? This goes into uh, uh, a sense, again, of millennials uh, believing and, and seeing that there is a uh, an interconnectedness of all that is, and also being um, around um, in a particular historical moment when it feels like from an, uh, from an ecological standpoint, um, there is a danger to all that is, and that, uh, that what is happening or what the behaviors of people in one part of the world are going to adversely affect 
in profound ways people on entirely other ends of the world, which in turn will then impact them, right? What I mean by that is the consumption habits of people living in Richmond, Virginia, um, are going to impact people who live in the Philippines, right? And then when the Philippines gets washed over by tsunamis and there is another refugee crisis uh, in, in a place like that, it's going to impact uh, Asia and Europe and America in the same way that you're seeing with the Syrian refugee crisis, although it won't be because of political civil war, it'll be because of economic, uh, environmental catastrophe. Um, and so that is, I think, again, of critical value to the millennial generation to see that religion is a force for advancing uh, a, a, a renewed sense of the responsibility we all have to each other, regardless of our boundaries and borders, and also to the natural world itself, right? And that's embedded at the heart of the Jewish tradition as well. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to tend it. In the hour when the Holy Blessed One created the first human being, God took him and let him pass before all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to him, See my works, how fine and excellent they are. Now all that I have created, I have created them for you. Think upon this and do not corrupt and desolate my world, for if you corrupt it, there is no one to set it right after you. Right? At the heart of Jewish responsibility is the obligation to ensure that this world uh, continues in all of its beauty, um, in all of its splendor for generations that come after us. So we have a responsibility to be stewards of, uh, of the, of the natural world. And the fourth and final thing, which if you were to look at the Torah and to balance out the different kinds of commandments that it has, um, this I think would be the biggest theme. You know, if you were to do one of those things where you were like, were to, uh, um, uh, analyze like what words are given the most in the Torah or like what ideas are given the most in the Torah and they were like to get in a like visual representation. Um, I actually did that once. The word et is the most frequently used word in the Torah for what it's worth, which is like a connecting word. It's an interesting sermon for another time. But this theme I think is the, is the most prominent theme in the Torah, which is uh, the theme of economic justice, right? At the heart of the Bible's conception of society is a society in which as Deuteronomy says, there shall be no needy. And in order to do that, it requires more than just uh, kind acts of charity, but a, a system of interconnection and responsibility. Justice, justice you shall pursue, that you may thrive and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For the Lord your God is God supreme and Lord supreme, the great, mighty, and awesome God who shows no favor and takes no bribe, but upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger, providing him with food and clothing. You too must befriend the stranger, must befriend the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. In other words, at the heart of the Bible's conception of the ideal society is a society in which the more privileged, the more advantaged, have a responsibility to take care of the less privileged and less advantaged. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow. I am the Lord. In other words, don't become rich on the backs of people who have less than you, right? Which is a clear statement of, uh, of the need for economic justice and, and economic equality, which is the heart of the concerns of the millennial generation. So if I were to sum up, and then we'll take time for questions, um, if I were to sum this up, what I would say is that embedded within the Jewish tradition are all of the values that are as timely today as they ever were, that speak to the needs of the emerging generation 
the same, if not more, than they ever did before. The problem is that they are uh, being obscured by, uh, by institutional politics and organizational structure. And so in order to meet the needs of a rising generation, my generation, generations that come after, what we need to do is exalt these principles to the place of prominence within religious life and specifically within Jewish life. If we do, religion will continue to endure and speak to the needs of, of the coming generations. If we don't, we'll perish, but we'll deserve to. And that's, I think, what Abraham Joshua Heschel said in the 60s. He said, it's customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Let us not be the generation where religion defeats itself. <laughs>